Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're holding on the top of page 848, the middle of the second chapter. And we just finished discussing that the, the act of creation, the, that existence is the greatest miracle of all, and that there is order out of chaos. The natural state of being is chaos, non-existence. The laws of thermodynamics, that everything should return to its natural state, which is death, non-existence. And the fact that life triumphs, health triumphs, existence triumphs, that there's life, that there's order out of chaos, is nothing short of an astonishing miracle, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy, creative divine energy, to sustain this reality, to create this reality. And it brings the analogy, if splitting the sea, which God had already created water, and he had already created the nature of flowing, that things flow, water flows, and he created the nature of things standing erect. For example, a stone wall stands erect. It doesn't need a force to constantly keep it up. The stone stands up. Water doesn't need a force to get it to flow. It flows naturally. And God performed the miracle of the splitting of the sea where he didn't suddenly transform the water into marble. The water didn't become marble. The water remained marble. But the miracle was that the water went contrary to its added-on nature of flowing. Instead of water flowing, water acted like the nature of stone, it stood. And yet, although God didn't create anything new, He just switched, changed, um, He changed properties. Instead of the property of flowing, which already exists in the world, He changed it for a property of standing, which also exists in the world. So God didn't say that the water should stand. There was a wind that had to blow all night to get the water to stand. Because in order to get something to do, to act, to do something against its nature, you need a tremendous force. You need a, 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 a something, an energy to force it to go against its nature. Since the nature of water is to flow, in order to get water to stand, you have to blow. You need a force to get it to go against its nature. What happens the moment the force is gone, the moment the blowing ceases, stops, the water reverts back to its, nat- to its nature. Water starts flowing. So how much more so when we are created something from nothing? We talk about existence itself, creation, something from nothing. Our nature is nothing. It's more natural for there to be chaos than for there to be order. It's more natural for there to be illness than for there to be health. It's more natural for there to be death than for there to be life. It's more natural that there should be non-existence than that there should be existence. So how do you get from non-existence to existence? This takes an ongoing effort, an ongoing force, an ongoing energy, the creative divine energy that must continuously and constantly create the world. And therefore, if God is constantly engaged and involved in creation, and creation is intentional, and deliberate, then nothing 
in this world is random, nothing in this world is accidental, nothing in this world is incidental or meaningless. If God found it important enough to trouble himself, to create at this very moment, to create this grain of sand, this episode, this occurrence, this incident, this experience, then it must be very meaningful. And it must be imbued with profound meaning. If God himself is bothering to create and orchestrate this event, at this moment as we speak, then it must be very meaningful. And this is the foundation of the teaching of the Baal Shem the importance of divine providence, which flows from the teaching of the Baal Shem that we learned in the first chapter, that creation is ongoing, which is the importance of divine providence, how everything, down to the tiniest detail, is by divine providence. How everything is meaningful, everything a Jew hears, or everything a Jew sees, is there to teach us something. There's a lesson. Hashem is speaking to us. Nothing is coincidence, nothing is by accident. If we encounter something, and we experience something, and we meet someone, there's a lesson, there's something inherent there, something very meaningful, that's speaking to us. It's very personal. Nothing in this world is haphazard. Everything is very personal. Because God is personally troubling, taking the trouble to create us at this very moment. So if something happens, God created that we should both be here at the same time. It's not a mechanical accident where we had no choice. It just happens to be that He is there and I am here. There's no such thing happens to be. Because nothing happens to be. The only thing that happens to be is that we don't exist. And the fact that God creates this very moment, this episode, this occurrence, this meeting, this connection, that I happen to see something, and I happen to hear something, and I happen to become aware of something, that's a personal communication between God from God to me. Personal lesson. Something I could learn. So the world suddenly comes alive. Everything is divine providence. Nothing, down to the tiniest, most exquisite detail, is accidental. Happens to be. It must be. There is no choice. Everything is being recreated at this moment by God. And the closest analogy that we have to creation is difficult for us to relate to because we don't create. As he began the chapter, we only form and shape. We take things that exist and we form and we shape it, but we don't create. Of course, you need a tremendous... The more you want to shape something, the further you get from its original... To take a piece of metal and to change it into a car, it's not a natural process. It takes a tremendous force to take this raw metal and to form and shape it into, into a car. But once it's done, you can leave and the car stands on its own because... You haven't really created anything. You've just changed the shape and the form. You've just revealed one possible form, one possible shape. But the closest analogy that we have in our own personal lives to creation is daydreaming. When a person daydreams and you create in your mind, you can be daydreaming right now. You're sitting at a, at a lecture, you find it boring and you start daydreaming. And in your daydreams, you can create all sorts of events, personalities, characters, 
You can win a Nobel Prize in your daydream. You can become the President of the United States in your daydream. You can become a hero in your daydream. You can see the press. You can see the, the awards. You can see the publicity. You can become a star in your daydream. You can become a billionaire in your daydream. I mean, you can dream. And it could be a very fascinating dream, engaging dream. And in your dream, you create people and events. And, and then suddenly you, your cell phone goes off. <laughs> what a happens to your dream, what happens to your people, what happens to your event? It's gone. It's not that you have to destroy. Okay, let me, I have to destroy this world that I've just created in my head. No, it's just, it just ceases to exist. As if it never existed. Because it never really did exist. It exists only within you. It's your thoughts that are creating and sustaining it. And your thoughts are creating the whole story from beginning to middle to end. And in the world that you're dreaming, you can, you can decide what rules and laws. And let's say there's a character you don't like. You have to destroy that character. Or you, just, you just simply out of the picture. He doesn't exist. And in order to, to create the character in your mind, does that character have to be born? Does the character have to go through? You have to diaper them and you have to see them through school until they grow up and... No, right out of your imagination, this character is a full-blown character and a ready-made character. And you know, everything in your daydream is all made up of the same substance. Your thoughts. It's only because you deliberately want this thing, to sequence, this thing to exist, it exists. Because it's all within you. It's not outside of you. It has no independent reality. Well, that's the closest analogy that we can get. That's not something from nothing. It is something from nothing, because it doesn't exist. It only exists in your mind. You are giving it existence. The daydream exists in your head. It's not, it's not that it has any independent existence. And you can leave and, and those characters have, have a continued existence. So I meant you didn't create the characters from nothing. It's nothing from nothing. But I mean, it's nothing from nothing, right? It's only a daydream. We don't create. But it's the closest analogy we have when we say Hashem creates. Hashem creates... Hashem creates, it's all within Hashem. There's nothing but Hashem. So Hashem is creating nature and the laws of nature and the sequence of nature and the logic of nature and order out of chaos and life and, and, and health and, and existence. Hashem is creating it deliberately. He wants, and it's Hashem's thoughts and intentions and deliberate intentions that's creating the whole universe, physical as well as spiritual universes. Mind-blowing, uh, higher levels of consciousness and then mind-expanding experiences and angelic and angels and spiritual realms and the whole universe as we know it. Time, space, words, concepts, ideas, spiritual dimensions, physical dimensions, physical entities, spiritual entities, the whole world, exquisite music, art, all the whole world as we know it. Is, is, God is thinking about us and speaking about us and that's why we exist. The moment Hashem chooses, to or He stops thinking about us, and stops thinking about us, and we cease to exist as if we never existed. We have no independent reality. So it's not that Hashem created the world 5,765 years ago and then the world is on its own. Hashem must be creating us right this moment. Must be thinking about us right this moment. Must be speaking us and bringing us into existence this moment. Because if you would cease for one moment, as in the daydream, you stop thinking, and it's, it, it's not like you have to erase it and there's a mark. It, never exi it, it only exists within me. And it's my thoughts and my energy that's, that's the whole substance, the whole substance of everything. 
is all made up of the same substance, your thoughts. The moment you see thinking, it ceases to exist. And the same is with Hashem. What is our substance? What is the substance of the stone, of the pebble, of the grain of sand, of the amoeba, of the atom, to the angel, to the galaxy? It's all made up of the same substance. The divine energy. Nothing else. The moment Hashem stops speaking, then the whole universe ceases to exist. It's not that God has to erase, erase the universe. The universe ceases to exist if it never existed. Because it, we have no other reality. We have no independent reality. So it's not that God gives us life. We exist, but God gives us life. The stone would not exist. There could be no existence unless God deliberately wills us into existence. Personally, wills us and speaks us into existence. And therefore, if Hashem deliberately wills us into existence, therefore, everything in the world is, has intrinsic value and importance. It's important to Hashem. The tiniest event, there's no such thing as tiny event. The tiniest event is just as critical, is just as crucial to Hashem as the most earth-shattering global event. Because Hashem is investing the same energy. Investing himself, so to speak. He's speaking and deliberately wills and chooses to create this grain of sand, this amoeba, this atom, as well as this earth-shattering event. Therefore, everything is divine providence. Nothing. It's impossible. Nothing could happen. And that's why this chapter B, chapter, the second chapter is a continuation of the first chapter. If you understand the revolution of the Baal Shem Tev, where the Baal Shem Tev took the Midrash and publicized it and explained it. And this has become the foundation, the cornerstone of the Hasidic philosophy, that Hashem creates the world each and every moment. If you understand that, then you understand that concept of divine providence, that nothing in the world is by accident or haphazard. Because if Hashem is personally creating everything, then everything is meaningful, and everything is connected. And everything has a divine meaning, a divine purpose, a divine connection. And everything plays an integral role in Hashem's purpose for creation. And therefore the world becomes a very friendly place, a very warm place. <clears throat> it's not a harsh, cold universe, an indifferent universe. This is a universe, it's a moral universe. It's a universe imbued with meaning. A godly universe, where Hashem is with us every step of the way. Hashem is within us, Hashem is all around us. There's no space empty of Hashem. Every occurrence, every experience, every event, everything has a divine meaning and a divine purpose. Both the positive as well as the negative. Everything has a purpose. Activating forces such as the above are the self-same letters of speech that constitute the ten utterances by which all beings were created. This is why the above quoted verse states, Forever, O God, your word stands in the heavens. God's speech, which is the force that brings a created being into existence, must be present, therefore, so as to give it life and existence. So forever. Not enough that God spoke these words at the beginning of creation, but forever. Because the moment these words cease to exist, heaven would cease to exist, earth would cease to exist, existence would cease to exist. Concerning this, Scripture says, And you give life to them all. Example, God provides the heaven and the earth and all the creatures found within them with life. Read not give life, but bring into being, ex nihilo, from nothing. It is written in Reshit Chachma, as well as in the Shar 
Ha'otoi. Am I pronouncing it? Shar Ha'otoi. The Shar gate of the letters. But although the verses use the phrase, give life, this does not mean that God only provides created beings with life in a way that the soul animates the already existent body. Rather, the verse implies that this provision of life also serves to create them to, re- to be responsible for their continued experience, existence. The literal meaning is, you give it life. Just like the soul gives life to the body, the body is a piece of clay without the soul. It doesn't move, it doesn't see, it doesn't hear. And the soul gives it life, energy. It makes it, makes it interesting, it comes alive. But the Torah here means something much deeper. The verse means that not, you give it life, you give it existence. Because without God, it simply would not exist. The relationship between, between God and the thing He creates is much deeper than the relationship between the body and the soul. It's true, the body without the soul is a corpse. But the body exists independently of the soul. Even after the soul departs the body, the body doesn't disappear, the body exists. But the divine energy with which Hashem creates the world, if the divine energy would cease, would leave, it would cease to exist. It couldn't exist without the divine energy. So he says, You give it life, he really means, don't, don't read, you give it life. Mahava means you create it, which means something from nothing. Which also means, in other words, that the very substance of the stone, the very substance of the body, the very substance of all existence, really is godliness, the divine energy, the word of Hashem. It has no other substance. Since it totally depends on the word of Hashem, the constant creative divine energy needs to constantly create it and bring it into existence. Therefore, its very substance is really nothing other than the divine energy. So you create skulam, all that exists. The word ata. The word ata, you indicates all the letters from Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, to Tav, the final letter of the alphabet. And the letter He, the same word, alludes to the five organs of verbal articulation, i.e. the larynx, palate, tongue, teeth, and lips, which are the source of the letters. This, then, is the meaning of the phrase, and you, Ata, give life to them all. The spiritual letters that emanate from the five supernal organs of verbal speech provide life ex nihilo, to the whole of the created universe. So everything in the physical world is just a, um, a parable for, for everything that exists, a metaphor for everything that exists in the spiritual world, like a parallel universe. So just as we have speech, speech is made up of 22 letters. The letter is the sound from Aleph through Tuf, and the five sources of, of speech, which causes the different letters your lips, your tongue, your teeth, the palate, the top of your mouth, and the larynx the, the, from your throat, and the different combinations. You have different letters that, um, that use your, uh, your lips, bays, vav. You know, it's by pressing your lips together. You have different letters that come from, from the larynx, aleph, ches, hey, that comes from here. And... Um, so you have the different letters that, that uh, touch, that come from the different, uh, different parts. So too, 
we say Ata, that you, Hashem, you refers to, if you get more specific, Aleph to Tav, that the letters, Aleph to Tav, and the Hey, the five combinations that, that, that differentiate the sounds, otherwise it would just be a sound. What differentiates the, the primal sound into 22 different sounds? It's the five sources of letters, the combination, different combinations of the lips and the... So it's the five that differentiates the primal sound into 22 different letters. And that becomes the source for everything that exists. As he explained earlier, that everything that exists, everything is created through the Hebrew language, through a different letter. Every letter represents, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each letter represents another divine energy. And the letters are the building blocks of creation. Hashem creates the world with the letters, with the divine energy as they are differentiated through the 22 letters, as they are differentiated through the five different um, sources of uh, different sounds. Although he has no bodily likeness, how then can we speak of letters existing in the worlds above and indeed add that it is through them that creation takes place ex nihilo? Yet scripture itself explicitly applies to him anthropomorphic terms such as God spoke or God said thereby ascribing to him letters and speech. And this, the meaning of God spoke or God said, is the revelation of the 22 supernal letters for the prophets. These supernal letters are enclosed in the intellect and comprehension which is to be found in their prophetic vision and are enclosed as well in their thought and speech as it is written, the spirit of God spoke within me and his word is upon my tongue. As has been explained by the Arizal in Shahar HaNavuah, Clearly, there exists letters and speech above which are capable of being garbed in the thought and speech of the prophets. So we see that God speaks. God communicates. He communicated to the Jewish people at Sinai. And he communicated, he communicates to the prophets. And God's speech uh, communicates and they receive God's speech through words and letters. The words and letters in the prophets in the Torah which is God's communication. So when we say that God speaks, the analogy is human speech. When we speak, what is the purpose of speech? When we speak, we reveal. We reveal something that's going on inside of us. We reveal something that's going on in our mind, something that's going on in our heart, and we communicate it to others. So speech is really there, not for ourselves, speech is really there to enable us to communicate. So too, when we say God speaks, God is revealing himself and communicating. Communicating to us, using our language. The prophets spoke in the language of men. God is communicating to us in our world, using our frame of reference, and it's speaking to us in a language that we can understand, but it's a divine, it's a communication of God. It's a divine communication which emerges from God and reveals itself in the mind of the prophet, in the words of the prophet. And these are prophetic words. These are holy words. They're not human words. It's almost like the difference between to use the difference between regular speech and poetry. You can speak, 
and speak and speak. And today we have an abundance of words, 24-7, non-stop speech. And doesn't touch you, doesn't inspire you. Um, it doesn't it annoys you. It doesn't stir anything with, from within. It's just an avalanche of speech. But then you have poetry. Poetry can be very short, very concise. But these are words that come from the soul. These are soul-stirring words. You know, Lincoln's famous speech, Gettysburg, four score, and you know, he could have said the same thing in regular language and it would have been forgotten. But you say it in such a way that somehow it just, it just touches your soul because it, touch, it comes from a very deep place. Words could be very superficial, very external, but words could also be soul-stirring. You know, your teacher that touched your soul, that used words that really got to you, that really touched you, that really moved you, inspired you, that changed you, that elevated you, excited you, and really opened up your eyes. Words. But there are words that are the language of the soul, and there are words that obscure the soul, cover up in the soul. The more you speak, the, more, the further you get away from your soul. You speak and speak and speak. The people go to therapy for years and years and years, and they have no clue. And still, they, nothing touched them, nothing moved them, nothing changed them. They're stuck. So you have an avalanche of words, and no, no illumination, no stirring, no shifting, no movement, no change. It doesn't touch you, it doesn't evoke anything from within, it doesn't stir anything within your soul. These are empty words, these are words that obscure your soul. But then you have words that are like a direct communication to the soul. The poet just has a window to the soul. Like the word just, soul words, they just hit you like a, a depth charge. It just touches you very deeply because these are soul words. These are not just words. The poet is able to define the undefined, to touch a place that's undefined and find the right words to express it. Most of our words are very limited because words are very limited and they don't really get into anything very deep, anything very real. Just a cover-up. And this includes people who are very articulate. People are very intelligent, very bright, very articulate. But there's no soul. But then you have when the soul itself defines itself. The soul communicates. But the soul communicates in words. Because if the soul communicates, we can't relate to it. The soul is undefined. Excuse me, what is Tillam then? Is that God speaking through? Tillam is part of the 24 books of the Torah. Tillam is by divine inspiration. They're holy words. So that was God speaking through? No, it's not a prophet. There's a difference between prophecy, the prophets, and the writings. The prophets are God spoke to the prophet. And the prophet repeats God's words. Ko yamar Hashem. So said God. God could speak to the prophet by way of image. God could speak. They see an image. And it's a divine, an image, and, they, and this is a divine communication. Sometimes God speaks to them in words, but using their words. That's why the prophet, each prophet speaks a different language. Isaiah speaks the most eloquent prophet of all. Then you had Ezekiel, you had the 12, the 12 prophets. Writings are different. Writings are not direct communication with them, but they're divine inspiration. So it's also godly. These are not regular words. These are words that, 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 that tickle your soul. That, that these are soul words. It's divine words, but, but by divine inspiration. So it's a, it's a low, secondary level, it's a lower level, not the same level as a prophecy, a direct, intense communication from God. 
God is speaking to you and you're repeating, so said God. The writings are inspired, inspired by divine, divine inspiration. But they're also holy words. They're godly words. All the prayers that we pray are based on the Psalms, based on the writings, based on the Torah, because all divine godly words. That's why it's so beneficial if you, if you understand, you can pray in the original, the Hebrew, because these are, these are divine words. These, this is like spiritual poetry. These are words, the rabbis of the great assembly, the Shimon Esrei was, was written by the rabbis of the great assembly, which was comprised of 120 prophets and, and, and people with divine inspiration. And every word that they wrote, it was divine, was, was godly, was, you know, touches the soul in a very deep way and has so many, so many layers of meaning and so many levels um, beyond the surface. So it's like poetry. You know, people today still read Shakespeare because the human experiences he described, no one has written it, no one has said it better than he has. So his words still resonate hundreds of years later. It's like a classic. So this is spiritual poetry. These are words of the soul. These are words that touch the Jewish soul very deep and move him very deep. These words, exactly the way they arranged them. Every word, every letter, it's, it's, been, it's very precise, like poetry. You don't start playing around with poetry. You know, <laughs> it loses the whole magic because it's precisely the way it's laid out. This, this somehow resonates and touches, touches you very deep. So prophecy is almost like a communication from the soul. It's, it's God defining the undefined. God is undefined. Divine is undefined. But God, when there's a, uh, something emerges from the soul, something stirs from the soul, and is captured in words, it moves you, it touches you in words. And that's the advantage of the prophets. The prophets, unlike Moshe, the generation of Moshe, they were the highest generation of Jews that ever lived. They were a godly generation. They were enveloped in the clouds of glory. The prophets, they were already in a lower level. Most of the prophecies are rebuke. The prophets are rebuking the Jewish people. But it's not like a rabbi rebuking his congregation. It's the word of Hashem. They're, they're quoting the word of Hashem. Hashem is rebuking them. It's divine rebuke. But it's, it's, Hashem is speaking to a generation that needs rebuke. A generation that's a little disconnected from Hashem. A generation that's very much... It's very much in the framework of words and, and, and limitations and definitions. It's already disconnected from Hashem. And yet the prophet has like a window to the soul. The prophet is where the soul stirs and comes up with words, but words that move you, words that sear into your soul, words that are divine, soul words. It's a communication and it's speaking your language, the language, the world of words. This is not a world where there are no words, which is infinite, which is transcends words, a godly world where there's, there's only one and there's no I, there's no ego and there's no words and a, a, a world that transcends thoughts and concepts. No, this is a, these are people that are very much living in a world that's limited and defined and external and superficial to Hashem. Disconnected, And yet, a prophecy is a window to the soul, a direct communication, a fresh communication. Hashem has spoke. Hashem spoke to us today. And he gave Isaiah the prophecy, and he's rebuking the Jewish people, and Ezekiel, Ezekiel is rebuking the Jewish people, and Jeremiah. But it's Hashem speaking. It's divine. It's not just rebuke, it's divine rebuke. Hashem is speaking. And these are words that until today sear your soul. You read the prophets. It, it, it shakes you. It gives you a jolt. 
These are divine words. Hashem is speaking. It's a window to the soul, a communication. Hashem is using words, using the language of man. The prophet is speaking using his language, language that he's familiar with. But it's divine words. It's like a stirring of the soul. It's like the analogy when we experience something suddenly emerge from us, from our soul, a, a word that, that, that just stirs us and, 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 and touches us very deeply, that emerged from within us. It's a word, but it's not just a word. It's a word, it's a poetic word. It's a word that really touches us very deeply. Unlike the majority of words, the majority of our life, our whole life is made up of words, but the words are very external. Words are very superficial. And they don't really touch us, and they don't change us, and they don't really get deep down into it. They don't really get to us. On the contrary, words are a great cover-up. And the more intelligent you are, the smarter you are, the more verbose you are. We are living in a Western culture which is verbose. And we have a... <laughs> we, have, we don't have a deficit of words. We have a, a surplus of words. 24-7, non-stop. Speaking and speaking. And at the end of the day, very little illumination. <laughs> but just a lot of words and words. But prophecy is like a divine illumination. It's like a... Um, a communication, a window to the soul, a communication from something stirs inside of you. It's a word that, that grabs you. It's a word that gives you a jolt and you pay attention. It's a word that you sit up and you listen. You know, it's like, it's like those gifted speakers or poets that have a way of like really speaking soul words. Someone else could say the same thing, but it, it doesn't do it for you. It's not, and this is like magical. It's like, it's like a direct communication from the soul. Captured in words, miraculously captured in words. Something, an experience that defies words, captured in words. That's the gift of the poet. So that's the analogy to prophecy. We say God speaks. And God transcends words and definitions and concepts. God is infinite. But God communicates with us. But, but God communicates with us. In other words, God uses words. God speaks our language. But it's a communication from above. It's a stirring. It's a divine word. It's a word that's directly from Hashem. And that enters into the mind of the prophet. And the prophet repeats these words, and these words sear into our soul. These words are divine words that stir us, that elevate us, that touch us in the deepest place. Godly words. They're words, but they're godly. That's the tremendous ability of the prophet. That's why it's one of the 13 principles of faith to believe that God can speak to a prophet, that God could communicate to us. Using human words, God could communicate to us. And these are divine words. And it's a divine prophecy. And it's holy. That God could, the undefined could define himself. That, that God is not limited. Those prophecy comes from a very deep place. That God is not limited. God doesn't only have to limit it to express himself only in an infinite way. God has the ability to communicate. God has the ability to reveal Himself, even in a finite medium, even using words. And yet these words are magical, are holy, are divine. They're prophetic words. They're words that touch you, that inspire you, that move you, that jolt you, that get to you. And you sense godliness. You sense these are godly words, these are holy words. That's the miracle of prophecy. In a certain sense, what the prophets were able to accomplish was even greater than what Moshe accomplished. Because Moshe gave us the Torah, which is divine. But the prophets were able 
to bring godliness even into our language, even into our world. Into the world of rebuke, yet it's a divine rebuke. Into the world of words, human words, but they're prophetic words. And they're divine words. It's like God revealed Himself using words. So we see that the Torah speaks of God speaking. Because it means that God is able to communicate with us. God is able to define the undefined. God is truly limitless. He's not even limited to being infinite. God could be infinite or finite at the same time. That's the meaning of God speaks. Not that God is limited to speech, but that God is so limitless. God is truly undefined that He can define the undefined. He can even use a medium of speech, the thought of the prophet, the speech of the prophet, the language of the prophet. And it's a divine communication at the same time. Only God can do that. This is a prophecy. This is what prophecy is all about. So God speaks. It's speech, it's limited, it's defined, but it's a divine speech. It's infinite at the same time. It's godly. Similar to this is the investment of the letters in created things as it is written, by the word of God were the heavens made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, except that in clothing of the letters in created beings comes about through numerous and powerful descents, until the letters reach the corporeal world of Asiya, which contains corporeal beings, whereas the apprehension of the prophets is in the world of the absolute, as it becomes clothed in the world of Berea. It is from this lofty level that the spirit of prophecy descends upon the prophets. In similar fashion, the supernal letters descend and are invested within created beings, providing them with life and creating them ex nihilo. So he says, similar to this, when Hashem speaks and He creates the heaven through His Word, it is also, we speak of Hashem speaking, Hashem communicating. When Hashem speaks, we, we are the language of Hashem. When Hashem speaks, He creates us with His speech. The whole purpose of speech is in order to communicate to others. If you're alone, you don't need to speak. If you're Robinson Crusoe, you don't need to speak. There's no one to speak to. There's no need to speak. You think, you think. You communicate to yourself by thinking. Of course, there are people who speak to themselves. It reminds me of the story. The, uh, someone comes to the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, I have a terrible problem. He says, I'm, I speak to myself. The rabbi says, I don't see what's so terrible. Everyone, everyone once in a while speaks to myself. Even I occasionally speak to myself. Says, Rabbi, you don't understand. I'm such a nudnik. <laughs> but if you're alone, there's no need to speak. The need to speak is to communicate to others. You want to communicate to others what's going on inside of you. If you don't speak, if you're incommunicado, people have no idea what you're thinking. People have no idea what you, what you love, what you hate, what you like, you don't like what you're attracted to, what, what, what repulses you, what you're thinking. People are clueless. you have no idea. Unless you speak, unless you communicate, people don't know what's going on inside of you. So the purpose of speech is for others. With Hashem, there is no others. Nothing else exists but Hashem. But when God speaks with His speech, He creates. He creates others. His speech creates entities, creates us, creates an entity that feels 
separate from God, that feels that it's an entity, an independent entity separate from God. So with speech, we are the language of Hashem. Hashem speaks and we come into being. We are Hashem's language. Because Hashem wanted to communicate, wanted to have a relationship with something outside of Him, and therefore, He spoke and His speech created something that appears, that feels as if they're separate from Him. And He said that these letters have to go about numerous and powerful descents until it's able to create something material, something physical that is totally disconnected from its source. At least in the spiritual realms, energy senses its source. Electricity senses its source. Energy senses its source. But when you, the physical, when you look at the physical world, you don't sense that there is a source. You don't sense that there's a root. You look at the physical world, you don't know that there's an author. You don't know that there's a builder. You don't know that there's a creator. All that you see is itself. What is the most powerful force in the universe? The will to live. Self-preservation. From an amoeba to a plant to an animal. It's all about self-preservation. There's no sense of anything beyond myself. There's no creator. There's no root. There's no source. All there is is I. So this is the ultimate, ultimate outsider, the ultimate uh, disconnected being is in the physical world. So when God speaks, it's not enough that God speaks. Because when we speak, at least you recognize the speaker. You, you recognize the source of the speech. But when God speaks, God ultimately, as a result of his speech, God created a world that doesn't even recognize that there's a speaker. Doesn't even sense that God is speaking. When someone, you speak to someone outside of you, but the other person knows that you are speaking. It's your words. He doesn't disconnect the words from its source. But God created a physical world that doesn't even recognize that there's a speaker. Doesn't even recognize that there's a source. Doesn't even recognize that, that there's an author, a creator. You look at the world, and the world denies a creator. Nature, Mother Nature. You don't see creators. You don't see that there's a speaker, there's someone speaking, that there's someone communicating. You just see speech as an independent reality, speech. Where did the speech come from? Who is speaking? It comes from nowhere. I exist. Where do I come from? I don't I am. I am because I am. Emotionally, experientially, we feel inside as if we always existed. And we feel as if we always will exist. We can't imagine the world without us, yeah, maybe intellectually, abstractly, but emotionally, experientially, that is why death is so horrible. We can't accept it because I will go on forever. I always existed and I always will exist. I am because I am. Independent. Self-sufficient, self-sustaining. There is no source. As if the words stand alone, independent. Removed, totally removed from its source, from the speaker. So in order to create a world which is totally disconnected, it had to go through numerous and powerful descents. Initially, when God spoke and the world came into being, God creates the heavens, the angels. The angels are also separate entities from God. They're created beings. They're not God. They're not allowed to bow down to an angel, angel or worship an angel. You worship an angel, that's idolatry. 
the angels are independent beings. But an angel senses that there's a speaker. The angel knows that there's a root, that there's a source, that there's an author. But then the speech went through very powerful, many numerous and powerful descents until it reached the point where the speech became disconnected from its source. That it doesn't even point to any source. It just exists. I exist. I don't need any justification. I don't need any rhyme. I don't need any reason. I am because I am. Why are you here? I don't need a why. I don't need an author. There's no creator. I just am. So in that sense, the speech with which God creates the world, especially the physical world, is different than the speech of the prophets. The speech of the prophets is a direct communication from the world of emanation, from the world of Atsilus, the world of unity, the world, the godly world. But the godly world reveals itself in the world of creation, using human language, using human metaphors. But it's a stirring of the soul, so to speak. It's a stirring, a revelation of the world of emanation. It's a divine, it's a word, but it's a divine word. But the speech with which Hashem creates the world, Hashem created something physical, something totally disconnected from Hashem. But nevertheless, it is the speech of Hashem, and Hashem's words, and Hashem's creative energy, that's constantly and continuously creating everything that exists, including the stone. And if for one moment, if Hashem's words would depart from the stone for one moment, then the stone would cease to exist. Now we have the ten utterances with which God creates the world. But corresponding to the ten utterances, we have the ten commandments, which are the words of Torah. But there's a difference between the words of Torah and the words with which Hashem creates the world. Even though it's divine speech, and although, although the Alter Rebbe explains in this chapter that since everything is really created with the divine speech, the divine energy, the divine letters are the building blocks of all of creation, therefore, in truth, everything is godly. The very substance of everything that exists is godly. And everything that happens in the world is divine providence. Nevertheless, the Torah the words of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, are entirely different. Because although the fact that God deliberately chooses and willingly chooses to speak this moment and to bring the world into existence means that the world must, be very, must have meaning, must, have, must be something very special. If Hashem is taking His time to speak and to will us into existence, then obviously everything that occurs in this world, everything that happens in this world, must be very meaningful and very important. Otherwise Hashem would not bother, or would not take the time to create us, and to create everything that happens in this world. Nevertheless, the words of Torah, the Ten Commandments, are entirely different. And again, we can understand this from the human analogy. God created the world with ten words. Well, what are ten words? How many words do you speak in your lifetime? Plenty. <laughs> and if you would have lived another hundred years, and if you live forever, you can speak forever. 
What are 10 words in comparison to the amount of words you speak in your lifetime? Nothing. No one is going to call the press. No one is going to make, call a press conference. Stop the presses. Front page story. It's a non-event. It's meaningless. In comparison to the amount of words that you speak in your lifetime, 10 words are nothing. Do you use up the amount of words that you have? Do you have words stored up inside of you? It's not, it's not like you, you're making a withdrawal. You have a certain amount of money in your bank account and every time you speak, you're withdrawing. You have a certain amount of words that are stored, stored in your soul and every time you speak, you're withdrawing. Listen, even Bill Gates, every time you withdraw a dollar bill, the bank account is de- depleted. Every drop you take out of the ocean, the ocean is a drop less. But you can speak and speak for infinity. If you live forever, you can speak and speak and speak and you'll never be depleted. Because speech is very superficial to you. Speech means nothing to you. Why do I need to speak? Do I need to speak for myself? I don't need to speak. I only speak for others. To share with others what's going on inside of me, I need to speak. For myself, I don't need to speak. So speech is totally superficial to you. Speech doesn't add anything. doesn't take away. It's not like you're investing a piece of yourself when you speak. You're investing nothing. It's not like I'm, I'm investing, a, I'm, I'm not giving a piece of myself. So if I do speak, I don't speak. If a person is taciturn, a person is very verbose, it doesn't really affect me, it doesn't change me, it doesn't matter. Now, speech is, the most, is a very superficial part of me. There's something that even goes even beyond speech, which is thought. For every thought that you speak, for every thought that you have, you need many more words to describe. If you think something five minutes, you need a half hour to explain it. So speech is much more intimate, is much closer to you. So in comparison to the thoughts, and you never stop thinking, you could stop speaking. Some people could. But you can never stop thinking. So thought is that much more powerful than, than speech. So for, for the amount of words that we speak, you can multiply that, the amount of words that we think. So what are ten words in comparison to the thought, which is the source of speech? You think before you speak. You speak of something that you've already thought about. So in comparison to the source of words, ten words are absolutely meaningless. It's not even a drop in the ocean. It's, it's nothing. And then take that even further. What is the source of thought? Thought is really a form of speech. But instead of speaking to others, you speak to yourself. Thought is speaking to yourself. You're revealing to yourself what your mind understands, what your heart feels. So you think in words to comprehend what what your mind comprehends, what your heart feels. But what is the source of thought? Emotion. Emotion totally transcends words. You don't love in French or in English or in Russian. Love is a pure experience. You can't express it in words. A genuine experience transcends words. You can't adequately express a genuine experience. Something very deep. It totally transcends language altogether. As much as you speak about it, it still doesn't capture the raw experience, the raw emotion. But then you go even deeper. What precedes love? Understanding. Raw understanding, raw intellect. That totally transcends 
Not only language, it transcends culture. The communists, scientists, had a perfect rapport with his capitalist counterpart. Because 2 plus 2 is 4 is pure intellect. The pure scientists, the pure physicists, pure mathematics. What's that to do with culture, language, communists, capitalists? It means nothing. It transcends language and transcends culture altogether. So what are ten words in comparison to the thought behind the words, to the emotion behind the thought, to the intellect, the raw intellect behind the emotion? Meaningless, nothing. And then you go even deeper. The raw intellect is merely the conscious self. But beneath it, underneath it, you have the subconscious self, which totally transcends words. There are no words. It's something infinite, undefined. So what are ten words in comparison to the subconscious? So when a person speaks, the person who is speaking remains a total mystery. I have no idea what's behind the speech, who the person is. I'm not even scratching the surface. The person hasn't revealed himself. And this is what the Torah means when the Torah says that God created the world with his speech. God created the world with ten utterances. The only difference is, is human, he's using a human analogy, but the only difference is the distance between the ten words and the person who's speaking ultimately is still finite. But the difference between Hashem and the ten utterances is infinite. So God's essence remains a total mystery. So the Torah is giving us a human analogy when it says that God created the world. God created something that is totally, that obscures God, that's disconnected from God, that, that obscures God. And yet at the same time, its very substance is nothing other than the divine speech. So when we speak, what are ten words in comparison to the speaker, to us, it is insignificant. So what is God's speech, God's divine energy, in comparison to Hashem? Nothing. Which explains why creation is called something from nothing. We've been discussing the last two weeks that creation is something from nothing. But after this whole explanation, after this first and second chapter, it becomes very puzzling. Why is it called something from nothing? If anything, it should be just the opposite. We should call it nothing from something. We are nothing. Hashem is something. Hashem is reality. We are nothing. Our essential nature is nothing. We are created from nothing. So much so that Hashem has to continuously create us each and every moment. So essentially, even now we are nothing. The only reason we're here, we exist each and every moment, is because Hashem, this, this, this dynamic, powerful, creative, dynamic divine energy that's bringing us into existence, Hashem is willing us into existence, creating us each and every moment, that so much so that our very substance is nothing other than the divine energy. So if anything, Hashem is something and we are nothing. So why do we call it something from nothing? It should be called nothing from something. Hashem is something and we are nothing. Truly nothing. We never existed and even now we don't truly exist. We only exist because Hashem is creating us this very moment. If Hashem would cease to create us, we would cease to exist. We have no independent existence. Our all being, Hussal substance, is nothing other than Hashem. Hashem's divine energy. So Hashem is something and we are nothing. Why do, why do we call creation 
Bereshit Bara, in the beginning, God created something from nothing. And there are two answers. One is from our perspective, and one is from Hashem's perspective. From our perspective, we call ourselves something because it's something we can grasp, something tangible. Our existence feels very real. We experience ourselves. We experience ourselves as independent beings. Our existence, our natural existence feels very solid. This table feels very solid. We're not aware that this table is just a swirling energy. To us, this almost empty of 99.9.9% empty. It's just a swirling energy that creates this sense of solidness. But that's, that's our experience. Nothing. We call the divine energy nothing because we can't grasp it. Something you can't grasp. Something you can't relate to. You call nothing. This is something. We are something. And godliness, infinite, undefined energy, for that matter even spirituality, we call nothing because we have no words, we have no concepts, we have no tools to understand it. So to us it's nothing. So much so you can go through your whole life and not even realize that this table and the whole world is nothing other than divine energy, pure divine energy. You can go through your whole life, there are many billions of people who go through their whole life and this truth totally eludes them. Some of them even deny the reality of God, let alone that the whole substance of everything that exists, including themselves, is nothing other than the divine energy. So it's nothing, it's, we can't relate to it. It's, it's all around us, it's within us, there's nothing else, but we can't relate to it. So we call it nothing. That explains it from our point of view, from our perspective. But the truth is also from God's point of view it's called nothing. Because God creates the world with His speech. The analogy is human speech. How much of ourselves do we invest in our speech? When we speak ten words, do we invest our essence in those ten words? No. Ten words are nothing in comparison. It's a non-event. It means nothing. So too the divine energy, the letters, the building blocks of creation, the divine energy with which Hashem creates the world, in comparison to Hashem, the source, Hashem who is speaking and constantly speaking and bringing the world into creation and uttering the words of the ten utterances, in comparison to Hashem, these words are, are, are nothing. Hashem doesn't invest His essence in these words. Hashem's essence totally transcends Hashem's capacity, Hashem's thoughts, Hashem's emotions, so to speak, Hashem's intellect, Hashem's, Hashem's essence totally transcends this tiny, limited range of creation of the world that He created. This whole universe that He created, time and space and concepts and energy and matter and spiritual and physical, and it's so limited. Hashem's essence totally transcends. Hashem could have created, instead of six senses, Hashem could have created 20 senses, a thousand senses. I mean, this whole range of the world that He created is so tiny, it's so minute, it's so limited, it's so, that compared to Hashem, it's nothing. And that's why it's called something from nothing. The energy, the divine energy with which Hashem creates the world, in comparison to Hashem, it's nothing. Within Hashem, it's nothing. The same amount of energy that we invest when we speak ten words, which is nothing, it's water off our back, it's nothing to us, it means nothing, it doesn't add anything, it doesn't take away anything, it means nothing, we don't invest anything of ourselves in those, in that, those ten words. That's the relationship of the divine energy with which Hashem creates the world in comparison to Hashem, who speaks the words, the speaker. 
And behind the words, there are thoughts. And behind the thoughts, there are emotions. Behind the emotion, there's intellect. Behind the intellect, there's subconscious. And then there's the essence. What are words? Nothing. Which leads us to a very troubling realization. Because it seems to be an infinite sea of nothing separating us between us and God. How do we communicate? How do we connect? We're so far removed. We are... Our whole frame of reference is so finite, it's so limited, that to us, even the divine energy that creates us, is, is to us is nothing. It's too infinite, it's too undefined. We can't relate to it. It's so beyond our grasp. And to Hashem, the divine energy, which is beyond our grasp, to Hashem is nothing, is meaningless. It's so far from His essence. So there seems to be an infinite sea of nothingness separating between us and Hashem. How can we relate to Hashem? How can we communicate to Hashem? Isn't a part of us Hashem? So there is no great distance. Because God breathed His very essence into our being. We're a portion of the divine from above. So it's not too difficult for us to connect us with Hashem because we have Hashem within us. The portion of God. That's the Jew. That's the meaning of the Jew. The Jew has a piece of the divine essence inside of him. And that's the meaning of the chosen people. God chose the Jew at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God spoke Ten Commandments. There's a world of difference between the Ten Commandments, which He gave to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, and the Ten Words with which He created the entire universe. And again, the human analogy. Yes, words are nothing. Ten words are nothing in comparison. Unless those ten words are, will you marry me? <laughs> those words touch your whole life. Those words touch your essence. Those words come because marriage touches your essence. It's not just a detail, an aspect, a great aspect, an important aspect. Marriage is the only area in your life where every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, every part of you, consciously, subconsciously, emotionally, mentally, physically, is totally engaged and concentrated. And that's what happened at Mount Sinai. The revelation of Mount Sinai. What took place at Mount Sinai is that Hashem starts out the Ten Commandments and He says, Anoichi, I who am I. You're not dealing here with God the Creator. That's God is role-playing, God is speaking. So a person speaks ten words. What are ten words in comparison to the whole person? It's nothing. So the whole creation, the whole universe, religion, mysticism, Hashem is absolutely nothing. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. Nothing. But here at Mount Sinai, I who am I, my essence, I am marrying you. I'm being intimate with you. I'm investing my essence into the Torah. When a Jew does a mitzvah, you're touching God's essence. It's mystical. We don't understand how by shaking an esrit on sukkahs, you are touching the divine essence. I don't know how. You don't understand how when a Jewish child, a five-year-old child, studies Rashi in the Torah, a simple Rashi, and the five-year-old child understands it with his human mind, understands what Rashi is saying, you are being intimate with Hashem. Your mind has touched the mind of Hashem. You're touching the essence of Hashem. It's a godly thing. We don't understand it. But that's the miracle of Mount Sinai. That's the revolution of Mount Sinai. Hashem, that's why it's called revelation. Hashem revealed Himself with creation. Hashem did not reveal Himself. Creation is called Olam. 
The world is called Olam, which comes from the root Helem. God hides himself. But with revelation, God revealed his essence. That's the miracle of the Jew. That's the miracle of Mount Sinai. That Hashem gave us a piece of his essence. Not because we're so smart, we're so clever. You can be the most mystical, spiritual person in the world. We're not called the choosing people. You can't choose God. That's the, mur- that's the answer at Mount Sinai. We cannot relate to God. God relates to us. It's a, it's, it's a one-way street. We, God relates to us. God chooses to relate to us. God chose us. You can be Buddha, you can be Mother Teresa, you can be the most mystical, you can be an angel. God didn't choose the angels. They don't know what God looks like. God didn't invest his essence in the angels. Who did God marry? Who did God invest his essence in? In us, human beings, in the Jewish people, in the physical world, in the temple, a mitzvah, a physical, studying Torah, mitzvah, unconditional love for your fellow Jew, doing acts of kindness. This is where you touch the essence of Asha. The non Jews path to God is through the seven Noahide laws, as given to Moses in the Torah. Which is why Maimonides adds a very puzzling piece, passage in Maimonides. He says that a non Jew is considered a righteous Gentile only if he follows the seven Noahide laws because it was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. There must be a Jewish connection. It must be connected to Mount Sinai. If it's not connected to Mount Sinai, he's only doing it because it's the smart thing to do, it's the wise thing to do, then ultimately it's not connected to the essence of God. If you want to be connected to the essence of God, it must have a Jewish connection. It must be connected to Mount Sinai. Because that's when God revealed his essence. And unless a non-Jew acknowledges that there was one revelation and only one revelation, And there never was and there never will be another revelation like that ever again. Where Hashem revealed His truth, revealed Himself, invested Himself in the Torah. And Hashem revealed in the blueprint, in the Torah, revealed the role of the non-Jew. The non-Jew has a role. A non-Jew, a righteous Gentile who follows the seven Noahide laws as stated in the Torah, has a share in the world to come. Nolam Haba will be resurrected because he, that's his role. He becomes then connected to the essence because that's his purpose. He's fulfilling his purpose. And that's a non-Jew that has a tremendous respect for Jews and knows that the Jew is his teacher and his prophet. Many. Especially in today's day and age. We're living in a country that uh, we have the friendliest Congress in American history that have a tremendous respect for Jews, tremendous respect for Israel, and tremendous respect for Jews who respect themselves who cherish their Jewishness. It's almost a miraculous phenomenon, but we are living in a very special time. I'm not talking about the Europeans. I'm yeah. talking about the here, here in the United States, the greatest country in the world today. So there, 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 is, there, is, there are righteous Gentiles, there are Noahides, chapters, Noahide chapters in every city in the world today who study with the rabbis, who study the Torah, who connect with the Torah, and consider themselves righteous Gentiles and are connected to Sinai. That's their connection to Sinai. But the Jew understands the dilemma. The dilemma is, how do you connect with God? You can't. Not through mysticism and not through meditation and not through love and not through philosophy and not, not through religion. Impossible. There's only one way. Hashem connects with us. Mitzvahs. That's why in Judaism... The mitzvah is the most important thing. The action, the deed. Because the mitzvah is divine. 
not a ritual, a custom. It's divine. When you hold that lulav and esrei, you are touching Hashem. I don't know how, but Hashem revealed. And only if you touch it at the right time. If you take a lulav and esrei in the middle of January, it means nothing. If you light a Shabbos candle, Wednesday night, let's, let's turn Wednesday night into Shabbos. I'm going skiing Friday. It's more convenient. Let me turn Wednesday night into Shabbos. Nothing happens. You're just taking a match and, and wasting a match and wasting a candle. But it makes me feel good. It makes me feel religious. I'll make a setting. I'll eat a filter fish. I'll, I'll pretend to chat. Nothing happens. But when you do it exactly the way the Torah tells you to do it, Friday, not after, not after sunset, before sunset, you light the candle, something mystical, something magical happens. You're touching the divine. And if a Jew, even if a Jew does one mitzvah in his life, you'll never be the same. It touches you it touches your essence. It touches you in the deepest way possible. It has a divine effect on you. You'll never be the same. A Jew will put on tefillin once in his life. will never be the same person. A Jewish woman will light Shabbos candle once in her life. She'll never be the same. It will affect her. And there are hundreds of thousands of Jews today whose path, return home to Judaism, started with one mitzvah. They were stopped in the streets, put on tefillin, lit a candle, and just a matter of time. And something touched them very deeply. So these are the ten words, the ten commandments, which parallel the ten utterances with which God creates the world. Because the speech of the Torah is an entirely different speech. It's a marriage. It's, it's Torah. It's revelation. Hashem is revealing His essence. In this chapter, He's not discussing those words, the words of Torah. In this chapter, He's discussing the words of the prophets, which is also divine speech and the divine speech with which God creates the world. Because the prophets are not, are not the Torah. It's a secondary level. And it's rebuke. Most of the prophecies are rebuke. So God is speaking to Jews who are a little disconnected. And yet the words of the prophets are divine words. They're, 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 they're divine words that's, that almost emerge, emerge from the infinite. Words that emerge from the infinite and they stir you. And you can sense that it's divine words. It's words, but it's divine it's like poetry, divine poetry. And that's the, the magic of the, it's also the magic of the Torah. The Torah, the words of the Torah are words that touch your soul. Not just rituals and customs. It's like divine poetry. A Jew who lives a life of Torah, a Jew who lives a life of Torah and mitzvah, the language of the Torah, the words of the Torah, just stirs your soul. And, um, and that's the mission of a Jew. The mission of a Jew is to take the ten utterances with which God creates the world and illuminate them with the ten commandments. Reveal godliness. Bring godliness. Transform. Change. Take the physical object and transform it into a holy object. Do a mitzvah with it. Take something physical and make it into a sacred, into a holy object. That's the mission of the church. What is meant that silence is a fence around the Torah? That we speak to many things that are not relevant to us? No, for wisdom, silence is a... Because in order to learn wisdom, you have to listen. People who are constantly speaking don't learn anything. Don't learn anything. They don't listen. It doesn't only mean people are constantly speaking to others. You can constantly be speaking to yourself also. You're not listening. So the ability 
the, the fence for wisdom is silence. Silence and listen. You can learn something. You can learn something new. You can learn something interesting. You can learn something you would never learn before. It takes a special ability to be able to open, to be open, and to keep quiet, and pay attention, and listen. What do you think about the usage of the Hebrew language in Israel? It's becoming uh, more an everyday language. That's a very good question. Since the Hebrew language, we just discussed, the Hebrew language is the building block of creation. The Hebrew language is so profound, so powerful, it's divine energy. Then how about the use of the Hebrew language for everyday mundane? This explains, by the way, there was tremendous opposition. When they made modern Hebrew, there was tremendous opposition by the spiritual giants of the Jewish people. Because the Hebrew language is a holy language. And to take this language and to use it for mundane things is wrong. Also, the Hebrew language is a holy language because it's a divine language. But the modern Hebrew has just taken many English words and foreign words and just Hebrewized it. And then it just becomes a language like any other language. It just becomes a consensus, a man-made language, which is really corrupts the whole thing. The whole point of Hebrew is holy because the language itself creates the objects. But when you start taking, so it just becomes one big mix, and you're just trying to make it like any other language with a dictionary, man-made language, and it's missing the whole essence of the uniqueness of the Hebrew language. Hebrew language is, that's why you're so careful by using the Hebrew language. With some rabbis on Shabbos only speak Hebrew, because Hebrew is a Hebrew language. And they wouldn't use Hebrew to talk about mundane, everyday things. Because Hebrew, Hebrew is the language with which God is creating the world and the universe this very moment. The, the words are powerful. And if you know how to use the words properly, you can create. The morale created the golem. By using the divine name and divine words, it's a very powerful language. This is the building block of creation. If you know how to manipulate, that's why a tzaddik is able to create miracles. Because a tzaddik is able to switch the letters around. Tzara, you can turn the letters around into Tzohar. It says in the Torah, God tells Noah, Tzohar Tasalateva, make a window, a light for the, for the ark. It's taking the letters Tzara, Tzadik can take the letters Tzara, turn the letters around and transform the Tzara, which means a Tzaras, Tzaras, which Jew doesn't know Tzaras, and transform it into Tzohar, light, illumination. So the Tzadik is able to perform miracles because the Tzadik transcends, is able to to reach the speaker, is able to connect with the speaker with Hashem, and he's able to move the letters around. And when you move the letters around, the whole reality changes, and a miracle happens, and something changes in your life. Because this is the, the, the building blocks, the divine energy that creates everything that happens, all your experiences. So when you take this holy language and you just use it for mundane things, it really loses its whole... Purity loses its whole essence. So if you appreciate what Hebrew is, you would be very careful. And you would think twice of making Hebrew just like any other language. Just consensus and it's missing the whole beauty of what Hebrew is. The holiness. The uniqueness of Hebrew. It's different. Israel is a holy land. It's not like any other country. The Jewish people are the chosen people. We're not like any other nation. It's not that God had 70 nations and he needed another nation, a 71st nation. He chose the people to create a different type of nation. And the Hebrew language is not like any other language. It's a holy language. So what was the, the language they used in um, 
Well, after the destruction of the first temple, when they went into exile, they started speaking Aramaic. But in biblical times, they spoke Hebrew, but they were on a much higher level. Don't forget, that was the era of prophecy, that was the era of the first temple, with the Shekhinah, God's presence was manifest and felt palpable. You experienced it, you saw it, you witnessed it, you lived it, you breathed it. That was a different, that was a very high level. So, they were never really secular. Everything they did was really permeated with godliness. They were holy people. And maybe it's no coincidence that after the destruction, which symbolized a descent in their lofty level, that's when they, they stopped speaking Hebrew. They started speaking Aramaic. The Talmud is written in Aramaic. The Tanya is built and based on everything that was written till this point, so it's steeped in that language, right? So when he's, when he's quoting a Talmudic passage, he uses a Talmudic language, it, so it, it flows in and out from Hebrew to Aramaic to all the languages that the Jewish people used. But the language that the Rebbe spoke in personally, the Baal Shem Tov and Rabbi Dovber and the Alter Rebbe and all the Rebbe's was Yiddish, which is a whole separate discussion, the difference between Hebrew, Aramaic, and Yiddish. Yiddish, which is Old German, is called Yiddish, the Jewish language. And the Baal Shem Tov spoke in Yiddish. The Alter Rebbe, these Hasidic discourses on which the Tanya is based, was spoken in Yiddish. That was the language of the Rebbe, it's Yiddish. So Yiddish is a very special, special language. But that's for a different time. Yiddish, Yiddish. absolutely. Well, the ten spherot is related to the ten utterances. That's why you have ten utterances. That's why you have the ten plagues. That's why you have a minion. That's why you have ten fingers. That's why you have ten commandments. The structure of the world, the substance of the world is ten. God creates the world with wisdom and understanding and knowledge and love. These are the ingredients with which God creates the world, the very ingredients. But the, 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 the 22 letters has to do with the last of the 10 spherot, which is speech, the power of speech, malchut. And speech, like the mouth, malchut is called the mouth. The mouth is a result of the five, the lips and the, and the, and the teeth and the larynx and the... And, uh, you know, the five different parts, the, the, the palate, uh, that, that divide the sounds into 22 different sounds. So speech has to do with the last of the ten spheros, which differentiates and creates all the different letters. It creates the different energies and the different combinations that creates this diverse universe, infinitely complex universe that we live in. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.